Hi everybody, Lucas here with the Still Untitled Arts Fuse podcast. Please send us suggestions for a name. We don't have a brand new episode for you, but this is a bonus episode that gives you more or less the full and extended conversation from episode one with Arts Fuse founder and editor-in-chief Bill Marks. We get more insights into the state and purpose of criticism, as well as an in-depth comparison between the film's Black Klansman from Spike Lee and Sorry to Bother You from Boots Riley. Uh, We hope you enjoy, and we'll be back with new material very soon. I just wanted to take a second to thank everyone who has listened already, given us feedback on social media, shared with friends, and especially those who have donated on Patreon, uh, Miss Boudreaux, Emily Daunt, and Emer Martin. If you'd like to help us pay our writers at the Arts Fuse and also make this podcast better, you can become a patron and donate at uh, patreon.com slash thearts That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thearts t-h-e-a-r-t-s-f-u-s-e. And as always, you can help support quality coverage of the arts by donating to the magazine at artsfuse.org. But for now, listen to the extended conversation with ArtsFuse Editor-in-Chief Bill Marks with myself, Lucas Spiro, and co-host Matt Hansen. director for his portrayal of police in the 1970s set film about an african-american cop who infiltrates a chapter of the kkk uh we'll talk about that in a minute but what we're doing right now is we have um bill marks in the studio uh he is our uh, benevolent overlord and benefactor the editor-in-chief of the arts views the magazine for which this podcast now exists um and he's here to talk to us about uh sort of what the arts feuds is uh how we got start how we started it why he started it and all that good stuff and i'm gonna let uh matt hansen actually take the lead on this one so go ahead matt and ask bill some questions okay so uh the the uh the podcast is is but a day old but the arts views is much older uh 11 years 11 years now we started in 2007 right wow it's pretty, pretty good run. Which is pretty impressive for a, a pod, you know, excuse me, very impressive for a magazine which is dedicated to writing and coverage about the arts. There are very few online magazines without a sort of physical manifestation yeah. um, that has lasted as long. There's no print edition. We're all online. There's no print edition, although, frankly, if we ever got enough funding to do it, I've had I've actually had a number of our readers say that they would love to get a sort of best of the fuse uh publication going in other words we'd make a selection of some of the best reviews commentaries features interviews over the past 11 years and put put it into a book we've had a lot of people writing for the arts fuse uh we have over 60 freelance writers Mm -hmm. uh you know covering a range of the arts from film dance books visual arts all kinds of music jazz classical music and so forth video games television we even have some food writing. My idea was to have a magazine which, in a sense, reflected what the old newspaper art section should have been and maybe wasn't, which is a sort of a complete one-stop shopping place for coverage of a number of different arts rather than being like a blog, you know, where you just focused on just writing about film or just writing about books. I wanted to have a wider range because I was partly hoping that people would check out Matt's book review, you know, or your review of the the Elvis documentary on HBO, and then turn to other things that are going on in the magazine. So you could sort of do some sort of cross, you know, uh, interests, you know. So, oh, man, I read that TV review, and then I took a look at that book review. I didn't know about that book. Or I read this review of a jazz CD, and, man, they also had another review of a classical thing that sounded really interesting. So, you know, it was yeah. one-stop shopping and also an attempt to sort of generate interest about the arts across the board and maybe pique people, people's curiosity yep. so that they would try out something that they hadn't tried out tried out before. One of the things I've always liked about The Fuse actually is, for those of us, for those of you who are listening who haven't actually looked at it at all, is the fact that it's probably the only magazine that you can actually get consistent, good coverage about jazz music. 
yeah, especially definitely. in the Boston uh, local jazz scene, which um, is sadly disappearing. Uh, I think Riles closed down, what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago? Yeah, maybe a month. So uh, it's just another place, another venue that's that's disappeared. But if you want to find out what's actually going on in the jazz scene in Boston, it's really hard to find that out just from going and reading the uh, Boston Globe or even listening to uh, the local Boston radio. So radio the Arts Fuse does cover it uh, fairly consistently. I mean, part of why I started the Arts Fuse is because the Globe and other mainstream publications were cutting back on their arts coverage radically. Uh, and what I partly love about the Archies is not only that we do things that the Globe sh would have done years ago, but we're also doing marginalized or niche art forms and performance spaces that aren't getting any coverage at all. I mean, at the Globe or at other mainstream places, they're, they're obsessed with the number of clicks they get, how many people are looking at, you know, a review of X, Y, or Z. I'm the opposite. I'm going, I, I want to do some, I want to review something no one else is reviewing, a book, a performance, a CD. I mean, I love that. You know, I'm saying no one else is looking at this thing and I can bring attention to it or if it's not particularly good, then at least I can look at it seriously because um, there's, there's more culture. There more, there's more arts going on than ever before, but there's less and less coverage of the arts. There's less and less of a sense of a filter. So everything is being thrown at you. And the only thing that's filtering it is marketing, you know, whatever, uh, you know, whatever word can get through to you through TV or whatever outlets that they can get, you know, that the, the, the places with the most money and the clout can get the word out. And so the places that can't get out the word and don't have clout and don't have a marketing, you know, uh, the budget, underdogs, yeah. the underdogs, they've got nobody to champion. They've got, and, and that was traditionally part of what criticism did. The critic would say, don't go there, don't go to see some stupid musical in downtown Boston, but go here to this little theater that's doing something really interesting and thoughtful and provocative, and you're not hearing about it, but I, the critic, went out, saw it, and I want you to share, you know, some of the, you know, the joy, excitement I had seeing the show. So I think that's an important part of the arts use. Yeah, absolutely. And like, let's face it, I mean, you know, we're living in a city that's really well known for intellectuality and for culture and for arts. You know, this is a place that really has a lot of outlets for that and a lot of really talented people. Matt thinks very highly of this town. I love Boston, right? <laughs> Part of this is about, is about you know, I mean, I love Boston. Boston. I myself, I'm with Lucas. I mean, I do think that the <laughs> Athens of America mystique is long gone. I never said Athens um, of America. <laughs> you know, well, no, but the idea that the, it, it is an intellectual place, but for whatever reason, for example, let's just take something like the Globe. I mean, the Globe had an opportunity to do some really interesting arts coverage over the past few decades, and they've really never been. And and, and when they had the resources to do it, they never really did it. Mm. Why do you think that is? Um, I guess they thought that they were pitching the newspaper to the suburbs. You know, mm. they weren't they weren't pitching the paper to the the intelligentsia. They weren't writing for Harvard and MIT and the universities that were here. They're writing for the folks outside of the city who are, would be coming in to see the big downtown shows that were sort of touring shows, uh, thinking more about theater here. But that would also include music. They simply weren't writing for the, you know, sort of the, the, the Bostonian urbanites or neither, or the intellectuals. Um, it's when in the This 60s, is why the Phoenix was around. And stuff yeah, well, too. that's what I'm saying. The Phoenix and the real paper... And to a certain extent, the dig today are around to speak to those sort of the intellectual urbanites, the young, the cool, the hip. But that's never that was never the readership or the audience for the globe. Hmm. And that's a really important thing. I mean, the city's pretty young. There's always college students coming around. There's you know what I mean that there's a a constant sort of refresher of the of the market for people who want to see arts here. And if you want to be young, cool, and hip, then read the arts views. Obviously, I mean that that went without saying. I I, mean, I, I can't add anything to that. Yes. <laughs> if any young, cool, hip people are out there, um, we'd love to know what it's like to be you. Uh, <laughs> I I hope the word hip is still is that still all Quran or not? I use it, but I, think I don't you use think, it or not. I, I think, use it, but I don't. I think everybody thinks I use it ironically. So. Yeah, I personally am a big fan of like old school jazz lingo. I like dig. I say I dig that. And I don't mean it ironically because now everything's ironic. You could also use the imperative, dig this. Dig this. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I just wrote something about a book about uh, the jazz bubble, which was dealing with, you know, corporate influence in terms of how it's changing the way we understand the arts, particularly the, the jazz. But the overall point I'm making is that that... Is that up now? That's up now. Just oh, put okay. it up. I mean, it's, it's doing very well. I'm getting a lot of interesting... I'm getting a lot of hits on it at the moment, so people are interested. But... 
Um, the idea is just that, that we're critical, meaning that we are not a marketing service. We're not there to present, you know, the, the sunny side up of everything. That doesn't mean we don't do interviews. It doesn't mean we don't do features. Uh, we talked to Toots Hibbert of Toots and the Maytals. It was Great. a wonderful the interview. Legendary. legendary. There's no critical, you know, not trying to take Toots down. Mm -hmm. um, but there are pieces on the magazine every week which have attitude, which have critical perspective, that don't necessarily accept art the way that it's being sold to us and offer some sort of an alternative. And that's another part of criticism. Yeah, speak I mean, a little more on that, yeah. Yeah, well, we, we talked earlier, criticism is, is about supporting artists that are overlooked and neglected. In other words, don't go to this, go to that. But there is also the aspect of criticism, which I think is an important part of the arts use, which is to, you know, to show us that the emperor has no clothes that uh, artworks or ideas that are accepted as being valuable, well, if the critic doesn't think that it's particularly valuable, right, then the critic in the art use is invited to undercut it, to talk about its shortcomings, you know, in a logical, reasonable, thoughtful way. I'm not into, you know, people insulting one another or, you know, or saying that something is terrible. I am. Uh, you know, maybe you are, but I'm Lucas not. I'm, I'm, right. interested in, I'm interested in argument, reasoned argument, but I'm right, definitely right. interested in um, in attitude and interested in, in rather than snark. And I'm interested in essentially having a dialogue in which we can start talking about issues of quality, issues of value. You know, the critic is an evaluator. And partly about being evaluators, yes, to say some things are good and why, but you're also going to say why certain things are bad and why. And I particularly love it in the arts use when critics take things that are perhaps overpraised or overvalued and say, no, this is not for me. And here's where I think it's being overvalued and why. And one other thing, since we just talked about my, I did an interview with the author of the book, The Jazz Bubble. And that is that to me, what's going on in criticism today is that the old days, you know, you would either say whether you like something, you didn't like something and why, right? That, that, that degenerated into sort of cons consumer guide. I now think besides doing an evaluation of the spe specific artwork, you should also start seeing, well, you know, how was this thing financed? You know, who's paying for this thing? Mm. You know, what audience is this, is this artwork um, being presented to and why and sold to and indeed. sold to in other words I think being aware of the marketing of art I mean one thing that drives me crazy about the New Yorker and there are a lot of things I like about the New Yorker but the writers write as if they don't know that when they're in, when they're reviewing a movie or they're reviewing a book that there's an ad there's a Tiffany's ad sitting right next to to the review Right. Or when they're writing about global warming and they're going, oh, my God, it's really terrible out there for global warming that there isn't an ad for, I don't know, a Cadillac or a Jaguar full color sitting right next to them. I really think or those, the cable news networks who are or, biggest donors are uh, like gas companies. and stuff. Right. right. I, I think a or critic should be aware. I think you you're know. just going to have to call them. Up. You know, you're going to have to start being aware of that, you know. And going, why is it that the New Yorker is not looking at marginal stuff? You know, why is it the New Yorker is only, and it doesn't need to, you know, it doesn't necessarily take ads from Hollywood or take ads from, you know, sort of the, the big, the big, you know, the big industries, um, or the, but they, you know, at least cultural industries, yet they don't really do a very good job, I think, of looking at, you know, sort of things that people haven't heard of. They're always, they're generally writing about, you know, the mainstream stuff and, I don't, you know, again, I think that's the sort of limitation, editorial limitation, which I think a critic should be aware of. So, you know, I think in that sense, I, my idea of cultural criticism goes back to an old tradition, which people really aren't aware of now, but I wish they were more aware of. And maybe the artists can help do that. And people like H.L. Mencken, Ambrose, I'm talking about American here, Ambrose Bierce, uh, Edmund Wilson, um, Randall Jarrell. I mean, critics who saw arts criticism in a broader, you know, cultural slash political context. That didn't mean they didn't evaluate art as art and they weren't interested in the aesthetic, but they they were aware of larger cultural, con you know, context in which the artwork is to be found. And they wanted to change the direction of the culture. They said, this will not do. This poetry will not, you know, read Auden instead of X, you know, or read this instead of that, 
or as Mencken famously said, critics are there to clear out the garbage, right? So that the flowers can bloom, meaning people are wasting their money and time on garbage. We can't critics really say this, though, that. about the role of the critic in contemporary society, though, can we? Hmm? We can't really say this, though, about the role of the critic in contemporary society. Though, well, I right? mean, that's that's the role that I see as the art. Right. I see myself and as the arts fuse playing. And, you know, Gerald Perry wrote a really it didn't get enough attention, but he wrote a really interesting piece about the death of independent film, basically saying independent film no longer is independent. It is it, you know what I mean? It is it is given up its birthright. Uh, those are the kind of pieces I must admit that I love. I mean, the piece on the on the jazz bubble, where I, I sort of asked this author some, some questions about how corporations were basically not only funding, but shaping, you know, our art and our understanding of what art is, right? I mean, those pieces that, that are sort of, that work in a broader context are some of the most powerful pieces in the fuse and the ones that I really admire and I'm the proudest to you know to post so yeah it's yeah. two ways criticism should support the underdog as you say support the good and the marginalized against the fat cats that are you don't deserve the praise but criticism also has to look at you know be unafraid of being negative in for the sake of guiding the direction of the culture i mean my overall metaphor is is diagnostic it's not moral I'm not saying that some art is good and some art is bad. I'm saying some art is healthy and some art is cancerous. And I'd say there's a lot of cancer out there, right? And we need the diagnostic uh, skills of critics, right? People like Mencken, Wilson, Jarrell, and there's so many others, Mary McCarthy, I could name a lot of, you know, a lot of wonderful critics who essentially, you know, wielded the scalpel well and at least created a dialogue. Is this healthy or not? Should the culture be going this way? And when you say healthy versus uh, cancerous, what do you mean by that? Like, go, go into that explanation. Well, that. you know, I mean, this is going to be sort of based on what every critic, you know, what every critic <laughs> thinks. Yeah, yeah. So each critic had their own particular way. I mean, my particular way of looking at it is that criticism should be there to reward art, which is, you know, challenging and has an element of dissent to it. In other words, art that is giving us some sense, has some meaning beyond entertainment, right? Or beyond simply telling us the conventional, giving us the conventional info or the conventional beliefs, right? right? So to me, the cancer is when we mistake things that are, you know, um, safe for, for avant-garde and experimental, mm. when the critic should be able to help distinguish between the two. Now, here's, here's something that's really new, in the, is what the critic would say. And then say, and, and even though this artwork is, you know, marketing itself as being something new, experimental, different, and great, it's not. I mean, that's one way. It's when we confuse, you know, what is actually challenging with what, which is not as challenging, which is what, which to me is partly dangerous and, and cancerous. Because we think that we're being challenged when we're not? Right. Okay. Because people... I mean, we, we're a society where we like win-win. Right. So we like making a lot of money and being edgy at the same time. Right, right, the arts right. love that. And that's sure. particularly big now. Right. And so to me that, I'm just saying. Which is great when it happens, but. It's great when it happens, but it doesn't happen that often. And right. But people want to market themselves as if they're doing that. And also, I mean, if the arts are about supplying meaning, something meaningful, right, then, you know, critic has to point people this is a meaningful experience and there are other experiences that might be entertaining that might be compelling but that you leave you somewhat empty
what about the popular stuff? You know, I mean, is is it healthy to sometimes, you know, consume the absolute garbage? I would say we've we've got so much garbage and we're consuming so much of it that we need pressure in the opposite direction now. Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to like, I like it because it's bad or I just want some, some disposable crap today, that's not the worst impulse ever there's definitely times where like i just don't feel like sitting down with like aristotle today you know or whatever or watching you know uh... for shame right i know i know i i hate to have to admit this but there are this times days when I the just can't, are numbered i can't unwind to all you know however however many books the prelude or whatever um it's no longer know. hanging out in the agora yeah exactly i just can't just can't watch uh andre rubliev today but um oh my god that movie just you have to dedicate like a day right it's like a four-hour movie oh, it's, about a, it's about a master a the, there's a new printout exactly I mean, there, that's going to be coming i'm which... eyeing it from criterion i'm very curious about it it took me three attempts to watch that movie sure. but like that's the other thing is that most people if they gave up they'd give up yeah i, I, I gave up because i fell asleep or like yeah, i got busy or like right. I, I realized that four hour like four, i didn't have four hours right. to watch one it. thing i just can't stomach is people going like i didn't like it i turned it off after 15 minutes so it's crap no, 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 no. It might be crap, but at least watch it all the way through and, and think about it a little bit. I, I, it bothers me when people say, I didn't like it, I didn't get it, so therefore it's got to suck. It must not be any good. It's like, I feel like, you know, and it's not just like eat your vegetables, it's you might be missing out on something that could be really amazing. Well, that's another part of what makes criticism valuable. Right. I mean, the critic would be there to say, you think that, you know, Night of the Hunter is not a very good film. You couldn't make any sense of it. But let me explain to you exactly why that is a great film. And here is why. And then right. someone will go, well, I didn't really like it. But, you know, the critic wrote some really interesting stuff about it. Maybe yeah. I'll take another look at it. And maybe I missed something. And under the guidance of the critic, then that person then will discover, you know, this really is a pretty interesting film. And that's film, happened much to me more. multiple times. And that's one of the great things that, mm -hmm. that criticism can do. I mean, it's there to help be part of a conversation where something you think is terrible um, is actually not, or at least you should give it, you know, it's part of a dialogue. You should give it another chance because someone sensible, thoughtful, expert, hopefully in the art form, has found something of value in it. So maybe the problem is with you and not with the artwork. Yeah. But we're in a very consumer-guide-oriented world here, right? So the customer is always right. right. So if the please customer, me, and if you're customer not doesn't me, like then it, then the algorithm will say, you will see other movies. You know, you saw this, and you will see more of this. You didn't like Night of, Hunter, Night of the Hunter. You will never see anything like that again. Right. Because the idea is to always steer a person to something that, you know, something that they're going to like. Yeah, and if you if you don't like something at first... There's absolutely no guarantee that you're never going to like it for the rest of your life. There's tons of stuff that when I first listened to it, uh, I wrote about for jazz. I didn't get jazz at first. What is this? It's all weird. All these notes and different instruments. And there's no words. And, uh, and then slowly but surely, it kind of dawned on me. And then suddenly, I couldn't stop listening to it. I've been listening to it for you know decades now. Um, or the other side of it, too, is that you, know, um, you may not like something when you're 18, and then when you're 30, you like it a lot more. And conversely, you, you could hate it when you're, or you could uh, love it at 18, and then at 30, decide, eh, it's not that great. And like, did you only eat one kind of food your entire life? You know what I mean? Have you always liked the only one type of food, and then you will never, ever, you know, uh, have a different taste experience? Like, in other aspects of people's lives, clothing you might wear, or places, a city you might live in, like, there's so many different ways where people's tastes change, and they feel like it's really great for their tastes to change, and their life is a little bit more enhanced, and their experience of their, um, their, their, their world is, is deeper and more enriching. But with the arts, a lot of times, particularly in the consumer culture, like Lucas is saying, and like you're saying, is that, like, you know, it, it didn't please me right off the bat, it's weird, I don't want to deal with it, and then they just forget it and i've definitely had times where i watched a movie and went what the hell was that and then i looked it up it was, but i was compelled enough to try to find some critical evaluation of it remember when i watched blue velvet for the first time i mean it's a pretty intense movie and i watched it and i was like what the hell did i just see and it come creeped to visit. come to death yeah it, cre <laughs> it creeped me out as it should it should it's creep pretty out, creepy yeah. but it was like this is creepy and weird and icky and i don't want to deal with it and but i i looked up um I found Roger Ebert's review of it and he kind of took me through like the symbolism and sort of some of the things that he's doing. And I was like, Oh, and then I went to see it in the theaters and, and then David Lynch is a filmmaker, twin peaks, all the other stuff started to become more alive to me and kind of become something interesting to investigate. 
And if you can do that for somebody else, you're doing them a real huge favor. I mean, basically, to go back earlier, I mean, loop back a few minutes ago, we were talking about the idea of guilty pleasures, you know, and there are some people who want to say there are no guilty pleasures. You should feel guilty for nothing. I mean, if you like whatever you like, you like. Right. So don't feel guilty about it. If you're not seeing King Lear, but you're listening to Beyonce, so what? Don't feel guilty. There is an element in which I have to believe in guilty pleasures. Yeah. Right. Because it seems to me that's part of what criticism has been about. Why are you watching this instead of watching that? Or some critics say, this is really interesting. You should feel guilty, you know, in quotes, that you didn't get it. Maybe you should read around, think about it, and come back. So there is that element of guilt. I do sort of believe in guilty pleasures. There are some critics who would argue that they, that guilty pleasures, again, in our new, what I would call the, the monoculture, you know, and the monoculture is the idea that you like what you like, and that's the end of it. You know, if you don't like a certain movie or a certain filmmaker, then go see something that you like. Don't feel guilty about it. Don't feel that you have to venture out of what your essential, your tastes are. That's sort of the monoculture. There are no, there's no hierarchy. There's no high, middle brow, or low brow. We're all one brows here. It's a very right? Protestant way of uh, it's, arts criticism. Well, it's also perfect, sort of, it's not, it, it's sort of, Without there's no arts criticism in this. In other words, it's all about someone can simply tell you how much why you like how much what you like, um, but it's not about what we're talking about, right? Generating you know a hierarchy or at least suggesting that some things are better than others and explaining why, making you feel guilty that you're not you're not reading Aristotle but rather seeing you know some TV show. And that was sort of part of what the you know what you would say the the intellectual side for the public that criticism has been, right? It was saying, look, if you want to move up the ladder of taste, right? If you want to, you know, feel guilty that you're watching television all the time when you really should be reading a good book, right? I mean, that's now sort of become a joke. But there was a time in like the 20s or the turn of the century where that was sort of take, you know, yes, you want to join a book club to improve yourself. Cultural um, improvement, was sort of part of the sort of early self-help idea. You know, get a book, get a good book and read Emerson, Manager read a Thoreau, become, exactly. And be that is now entirely power. decayed. In the monoculture, there's no need for self-improvement. You simply are exploring what you like and you're seeing more of it. Um, and so that's, to me, that is not Protestant. It sort of does away with, you know, it does away with criticism entirely. And it's purely turned, you know, it does aside with criticism so that culture purely becomes a matter of marketing, becomes a matter of social media, becomes a matter of the algorithm. You know, if your friends like a certain movie, then you're going to like it. I mean, I have students at BU, not knocking, and I want to go into the youth, but you know, so one of my students told me in my arts criticism class, well, I really didn't like a movie. But all my friends really liked it, you know, on Facebook. And so I sort of said that I liked it because I didn't want to be the one that was sort of singled out as being different or being difficult or somehow making the others feel bad that they like something that I didn't like. And that's another aspect of criticism, which is that it takes a certain amount of courage, I'd say, because often you might be the only person in a theater that doesn't like what they've seen and you're the, and you or write down it. why you didn't or likes it. I mean, it can be either way. And you're going to have a lot of people that are not going to be happy with the decision that you've made. And some people are uncomfortable with that. And so in, when they're, when they do criticism, they simply, you know, go with the flow. You know, they tend to like everything because people tend to be happy with you when you like everything. Yeah. I mean, I feel like for me, when it comes to, um, when it comes to matters of like uh, entertainment and 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 uh, guilty pleasures, I, I think it's not. I don't think you should be comparing. So if you're going to talk in, in, for movies and movie context, right? You talk about a movie you watched. You don't want to compare it to something that it doesn't really have any business being compared to, right? So, uh, forgetting Sarah Marshall, okay, is, is is I think a really good movie. It's good for what it's trying to do. It's good within the genre that it is. It's not good compared to Andre Rublev or Blue Velvet or Citizen Kane. Because it'd be silly. I mean, you could make the comparison if you wanted to. If you really saw a connection, by all means do it. There's no nothing wrong with comparing something that's sort of outside the genre. But just because it's not about, 
you know, <laughs> the hu- you know, the wretchedness of the human condition, or you know, the suffering of of Isn't whatever. Isn't that what forgetting Sarah Marshall's about? In many ways, actually, I will totally go on record for saying that <laughs> forgetting Sarah Marshall is in many ways about the human condition and the uh, suffering of the human condition, particularly as far as relationships are concerned. And Russell Brand. But so my point being is that it's not that forgetting Sarah Marshall is crap because it isn't Shakespeare. It's good because of what it's trying to do, of where it's trying to take the, 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 the audience. And if you want to make the audience laugh, right, then like there's a, you know, you know if something's successful or not, because if people are, Sound Comics talk about this all the time. If people are laughing, then okay, well, I've gotten something here. And if you're watching, um, you know, Blue Velvet because you want a romantic comedy, well, you know, take me there. Okay, I'm, I'm <laughs> but gonna don't give... be upset because it doesn't correspond to the category. I'll, you I'll give the counter argument to that. All right? Please do. All right. We're all about counter arguments. I'm here, the yeah, counter argument here. I'm going to bring out good old Edith Wharton. Edith Wharton I love had Edith three Wharton. questions when, as a critic. She said, first, you know, be fair and look and look at, you know, look fairly at a movie or read a book, right? You know, then try to discern what was the writer, or in this case, a filmmaker, trying to do? What was the intent? So, right. I mean, for you know, um, obviously, the intent of different filmmakers are going to be different, right? right? Right. But then she had the third question. Third question, I think, is an interesting one. And her third question is, was it worth doing? Yeah. I.e., you see, I mean, a lot of my students love the Saw films, right? The series where they're basically just sadomasochistic jamborees where people are being, you know, sort of, yeah. you know, cut up and, you know, and, you know, there's a certain amount of suspense, but there's an enormous amount of blood. Now, you could say that Saw 3 was really good. I mean, people were yelling and screaming in the theater. They were, they, they were just frightened out of their mind. That was the intent of the filmmaker. That's what they're trying to do. And they succeeded at doing it. Third question. Was it worth doing? My answer would be no. Right. So well, perhaps thwart- monetarily or financially. Yeah. Well, worth we're, doing. <laughs> but here we're talking about yeah. the critic doing. Yeah, you know, yeah, we're yeah. talking about the set designers. Definitely let's, felt like it was. Let's worth evaluate it aesthetically. That. Was it worth right. doing? And I, I would even do it in a broader cultural question. So I won't flinch from that. Right. Was it? Is it worth doing another horror film where they're you? There's they're doing expert adroit use of editing and whatever to scare the bejesus out of, but in right. a purely sort of visceral way with absolutely no other meaning beyond simply sim- continually scaring people. I think the slasher film as a genre, though, it is something that does have to evolve uh, to oh, some yeah. degree, you know? So so whether or not the Saw films are the... Are the I haven't seen any of the Saw well, films. Well, no, I, so I but my, the, know, the but third like, question could be, yeah. you could see a slasher film that actually could merit a yes to the... You know, oh, totally. No, but this one's a really interesting one because right. it does... Ex- there's a reason... It's it's taking the form forward. And then you're being a critic. Then you're, you're being, being a, critic. a good critic. But you could say, I, you know, I have a lot... In the consumer guide world we're in, where it's either a thumbs up or a thumbs down on Saw 3. You know, does it... You do what it's supposed to do, you know, scare you or not, right? But in the world of Edith Wharton, and I think in the world of real criticism, there's a third question, was it worth doing? And mm-hmm. so it's beyond the consumer thumbs up or thumbs down. It's a, but was it worth doing? Right. And the answer is, it's well done, serves the artist's intent, but it's not worth doing. There you go. And then somebody else could say, oh, no, I think that, I mean, I don't know, Saw movies are worth doing because they... Uh, whatever they can come up with their counter yeah, you can i'd, lo- I'd love to hear the counterclaim yeah, on that one. exactly i mean i use saw because it's a pretty easy example sure. some of the other ones they're talking about like romantic comedies whatever would be well this is funny and it's warm and it's and it's fuzzy but we really have a whole lot of them what right. in the hell reason do we have to do for this one yeah why add on another you know they're basically formulas so why add on another maybe slight tweak of of the formula, so to me, you use the third question, and you would go, "Well, it's it's funny, it's fuzzy, it's interesting, but no, who but cares? It, yeah, but why is it worth doing? And is then, it worth doing? Yeah. Is, is and it, then if you start to say, "Well, it is worth doing because blah blah blah," made me think differently about relationships, like I'm just for forgetting, forgetting Sarah Marshall, or made me think differently about the way that I think about uh, romantic comedies, like it's made the romantic comedy go to a different place, you know, or the characters kind of made fun of something that I think should be made fun of, like, then you're acting like a critic. Then, then you're, you're more like you're a thinking, critic, although yeah. I'd be careful with the I. You know, in other words, it can make, you know, you want to say it, from all the romantic comedies you saw, it is doing things with the way we look at relationships, you know. Yeah. 
I want to broaden it a little bit because then that makes it a very weak argument. Well, I, you know, yeah. I never right. saw a romantic comedy like this that made me think that. And then someone could write in, I'm, well, I'm sorry, Matt, but, you know, really, right. that's it's in every romantic comedy. Right. right. It is new to thee. I've seen a bunch of romantic comedies, and this is actually not that It's not, not new to me. Right. So, if you're the kind of person that needs a Saw movie to tell you not to be a slasher, uh, uh, yeah. an axe murderer, then, well, your opinion is... Uh, not terribly like i really wanted to slash people to death but then i saw saw and i saw i saw the mess i saw the muss i saw the fuss seems like i don't think i have enough garbage bags on hand to collect all the body parts bleach in the world i thought enough bleach i don't like you know i don't want to clean up there's no cleanup in these things now i can planning alone would take forever to invite everybody in on a conversation about two films that are out right now. We've already spoken about one of them earlier, uh, and we're going to introduce the second one, uh, which is Black Klansman. So the first film we talked about was Sorry to Bother You, the new Boots Riley film, which has sort of, um, I suppose, had some mainstream success for an somewhat independent... Tripled its budget. Um, uh, ...radical film that actually is literally calling for... Uh, some sort of workers' revolt against the uh, capitalist overlords, which you don't always see, or you don't see, you know, earnestly portrayed in in cinema, without uh, some sort of kumbaya moment at the end, where there's no actual overthrow of the na- of, of the uh, of the established order. You know, things just sort of get back to back to normal. Uh, and the other film that people are people are talking about uh, is Black Klansman, which is the new Spike Lee joint, uh, which was reviewed by um, Tim Jackson. And Boots Riley. Incendiary Entertainment is how we call it. Uh, so Boots Riley, uh, some of you may have seen on Twitter, posted a sort of a brief essay responding to Black Klansman. And he has uh, some some choice words uh, for Spike Lee. Basically, his whole, his whole issue is that the film is a fiction and he wants people to know that it's actually a fiction. And that the, the Ron Stallworth in the, the Spike Lee joint is not the Ron Stallworth of uh, uh, actual history. And the way that Boots' main argument here is that uh, Spike Lee sort of glosses over the literal damage that the COINTEL program did to um, radical black movements, uh, radical leftist movements in uh, the 1960s and 70s uh, in order to make essentially a buddy cop film that makes the cops the heroes in an era when the cops are most certainly not the heroes, both in the 70s and also uh in contemporary society which is you know at the very least uh to use a not very uh powerful term problematic so i read boots riley's comments and he makes the point that the police are portrayed in sort of a positive light and how that's not really necessarily historically accurate for the time and he also makes a point about how well not even just not historically accurate for the time but just that to make cops the heroes is kind of a a bold move for spike lee anyway because like I had a problem sitting in the theater rooting for cops. You know, granted, their enemy is, is the KKK, so, like, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Um, but He thinks that there's a scene where one of the cops, uh, who's an open racist on, on the force, is, um, we all know it throughout the movie, and we all hate him because he's an open uh, racist, and he gets sabotaged at the end of the film, and they, like, catch right. him saying something right, and then they, oh, he's done, and then they, he gets hauled off, and everybody's happy after it that. It was like a he Poirot probably, moment, you know, yeah, where, totally. where everybody in the room, totally. you know, finally figures out who Aha. the bad guy really is, and everybody, right. you know, gets to feel they cathartic and go home. And yeah, then we're yeah. all, like, we're all happy, and we're right. celebrating that. Uh, he felt that was a little too too much. Um, well, because that there's no indication that that ever happened. Right. At least not to Ron assume, And, and he feels memoir. like it's kind of a pushed is kind of stretching things to assume that like police forces would actually do that. Mm-hmm. Um, Usually they look after their own. Right. Tend- that seems to be the tendency. So the other point he makes uh, is that the, um, the black cop in the film is used to undercover infiltrate 
the uh, Black Panther speaker, the real life Stokely Carmichael, also known as Kwame Ture. I have that correct? Yep. Um, and so that's you know that's a black cop infiltrating a, a black power meeting, and so it's kind of doubly suspicious. Well, he says do that. he says in his little essay, the real Ron Stallworth infiltrated a black radical organization for three years, where he did what all papers from the FBI's counterintelligence program or COINTELPRO that were found through the Freedom of Information Act tell us he did, which was to sabotage a black radical organization uh, whose intent had to do with at the very least fighting racist oppression. Right. So the the actual intention of the of Ron Stallworth's you know undercover duties as uh, infiltrating a black radical organization is to literally undermine what his you know intentions are and the intentions of his character in the film, which is to undermine uh, racist oppression by having the uh, white guy played by um, uh, uh, Kylo Ren. Uh, <laughs> Adam Driver, uh, yes, <laughs> um, uh, infiltrate the the Ku Klux Klan. I was trying to remember his name from Girls, the character he has in Girls. I don't remember what the name is. That's right, he wasn't that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, right. And so that is he, he finds that really uh, problematic. I think my impression of it was, I'm really glad that the critique is there. I'm glad he made that argument. I'm glad he put that out there so people can talk about it. Because it's really important that we remember COINTELPRO and that we know what that was and some of the stuff that happened. That's only scratching the surface, for God's sake, of what um, the FBI was was up to. Well, he's not even he's not even FBI. He's Colorado Springs Springs Police. So, no, I know, but yeah. I'm saying COINTELPRO oh, as, yeah. a, as a as a as an. Well, we we thing. we know we know what COINTELPRO did. I think we know a lot of what they. I mean, did. yeah, the record and, is like, out there, and and we should be reminded of it, and it's pretty horrible. Right, and so it. I think he does have a serious point here yeah. uh, when he's saying that to 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 basically um, downplay the significance of the COINTELPRO program, even though he's not an FBI informer. I think he was working before the FBI, uh, even when he was with the Colorado Springs Police. I might not have that correct, but uh, it doesn't matter that it does make it seem as if that history is not important. And maybe that's not, you know, what it underplays that history. Yeah. yeah. And I would agree that the movie sort of... Um, underplays that history a little bit my argument would be that i don't think that that's the movie spike lee's setting out to make that's why i don't feel like if you wanted to make a movie about cointelpro then right this goes back to do that and i have all power to him this goes back to intent and stuff so like was was spike lee making a uh let's forget about cointelpro movie or was he making a sort of um uh, comment on uh, the black exploitation genre, yeah, which he definitely is, and uh, and trying to sort of put in your face uh, the the existence of contemporary white supremacists in America, right? Who, which is are, more, I think, towards yeah. his immediate point, which is like, so I mean, I totally think it's great that we ha- hold on to that history and that we know that, and that that is brought to light so that more people will study up on it. But I think it's. Well, the history adjacent. is what's is what's is what's not brought to light in this. Film. Well, I'm just saying Cointelpro, and then yeah. the issue of Stallworth himself. Again, like I think it's great we have it for the historical record. We should know that, and uh, we should know more about it, and we should know all the intricacies of it. And anybody who wants to know it can look it up. I feel like for the movie itself, I I really liked it. I thought it was a really solid movie. Um, I would give it like a B plus. I don't think it's quite the flawless masterpiece that uh, Do the Right Thing is, but. I think he managed to do a really tr- accomplish something really tricky, which is to make this whole plot uh, structure work. People laughed at the right times. People were kind of at the edge of their seats at the right times. And ironically, which I think is really weird to say, but a sensitive and what's the word I want to say? I want to say like human appraisal. He he is really looking at the clan as what are these people about? What are these? What is people's lives like? What is what is their philosophy like? He really is giving like a solid look at these people, and also just how normal they can appear. All the aspects of it: how normal they yeah. are, how delusional they are, how angry they are, how childlike they are, how stupid they are, but also how kind of not stupid they are. They're kind of cunning. They're cagey. They're actually trying to plan stuff. And he really like, I I mean I would give him I would give any filmmaker a lot of credit for like actually doing a deep dive into the I don't know, I want to say clan has humanity but into the humanity of of these really messed up monstrous people and I think that's really like a courageous thing to do and I think it was well done these are three dimensional characters in a lot of ways and that's gutsy uh, the 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 wife character 
sort of like the den mother of the little crew. Mm-hmm. The fact her character is such like a she's like the loving den mother to a bunch of evil racist bastards, and her desire to help out is motivated very clearly. We can see it by her like unadulterated love for her evil husband. So to be able to put that like their their uh, their white supremacist pillow talk, yeah, it's just, like really disturbing. Of, it's totally it's disturbing like... and kind of funny. Yeah, and it also gets that aspect of like people can be motivated for like what in some ways are noble reasons to do really horrible things, which is a really profound insight. And to get like the David Duke kind of he's sort of charming and kind of boyish and he doesn't think of himself really that much as a racist. He obviously is, but he thinks of himself as somebody who's on a totally kind of different mission. That's really gutsy. That was like a really interesting and powerful thing for him to, to do as he wrote the film too, I think. He, I think he co-wrote it. But for him to examine that is just, I really, I really like, I think that speaks well of him as, a, as, a, as an artist. I've always heard these things, uh, just they pop up every now and again, where people accuse Spike Lee of race as being a racist and all the white people in his movies are just like raging, raving, you know, uh, racist bastards. And I just, honestly, I feel like it's so wrong. I don't see the evidence of it do the right thing the characters do bad things but they are three-dimensional you get into their worlds you get into their heads and uh i really think as an artist he rises above like those kinds of um accusations and this is another example of like an opportunity where if he really wanted to just say one thing he could have done it but he touched on a whole lot of stuff as for like and then so um you were saying about with with boots riley was criticizing how he makes the cops heroes Mm -hmm. right and it's sort of like white cop black cop working together they're slapping each other five and all that. Again, I mean, you know, there's plenty of reasons to criticize the police force in America right now. And it's, there's also, like, you can understand how somebody uh, would want to make the cops into uh, nothing but a bunch of, you know, uh, vicious, power-hungry thugs. And he gives them three-dimensional characters. I'm a big, I'm a big believer that great art is supposed to see all kinds of different people and from all kinds of different angles. And so I actually disagree with... with uh, boots riley about that i think that's actually like a more interesting dramatic uh demanding thing for him to do in response spike lee said look at my films they've been very critical of the police but on the other hand uh, i'm never going to say all police are corrupt that all police hate people of color i'm not going to say that i mean we need police i i would disagree with spike but but uh Go ahead, yeah. but that we, that we need police uh but no it, he is re- he is right in the sense that yeah, not all not all cops are bad, but I mean I don't really care at this point. Like it's we've we've got we've got two films that are v- divergent. I think at a very critical point, and I think this comes back to if we can just sort of get a little bit more sort of uh, abstract here uh, with the intention and the purpose and and the climate with what what is art is supposed to do. Is it more dangerous for a very well respected established cinematic you know auteur? to um, write over the more troublesome aspects of a history in order to make the point that the the clan is bad, you know, (laughs) Uh, instead of looking at some more deeper institutional uh, problems at the same time. And so Boots film uh, says, you know, it's, it's a, it's a uh, multiracial, multi-gendered, you know, uh, labor movement. That's essentially the, uh, the impetus to, to have social change, which is, you know, so it's not even really, uh, a race film or a film about racism um on a certain level on yes, a certain level not that there's not that there isn't you know right, right. huge you know <laughs> racial elements to right, it, you know using course. the white boys and all that kind of stuff right. but the answer is not you know necessarily black power the answer is power of seizing the means of productions and you know overthrowing the capitalist class and yeah. you know for everybody for, for women, everybody for yes. people of color yeah um, because they're united as workers so we're all in this together versus it's my group that's being messed with and it's only my group that's important I would agree, although, I mean, I have seen this film, and I would say what what makes this film sort of interesting is a sort of added sort of mythological, archetypal um, element of fantasy, uh, you know, in the case, in this case, the, the white exploiters, you know, the, the libertarian crazy man who's sort of the head of all this. Well, he's also is, got pe- black people in positions of power. No, I know, and but I'm just saying it, well. it, the thing is sort of his, he's obviously financing, play, and they're creating his dream. It mm-hmm. seems to be his dream. Uh, and I want to be, I don't know, will this be a spoiler or not? Maybe it will be, but... The film's been tra- out for like a yeah, month, right? Yeah, of transforming humans into these sort of, you know, these sort of horse... Beasts you know, of burden. These sort of beast of burden, sort mm-hmm. of horse-like creatures. It's that fantasy of the flesh, 
and of the of class and everything being plastic and moldable and changeable, right? I mean, this is where the sort of godlike archetypal sort of Darwinian satire comes in here because the, the, the head of it is basically saying, you know, we are going to create human beings, you know, we are going to re, we are like, I'm like a God and I'm going to recreate human beings to serve my purposes. And thus that is an interesting element that's added on to it because it's not just saying, okay, well, it's the horrible capitalist class that are doing things right. to workers. It's about essentially maybe what the diseased, godlike imagination, fantasy of this of this powerful class, of which there is there seems to be no limit. You know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. nothing to tell him he can't do it. He has the money to do it. Um, that I found sort of interesting about you know interesting about it. I mean, it, it is it obviously it's about race. He needs, but it's a... also about a diseased sort of you know fantasy, diseased imagination of which there is no limit. And and like any you know god that's not a, a badass enough to do their shit themselves, he needs a messenger, which is the whole point of recruiting um, uh, the Cassius Green character to be what he calls basically the the Martin Luther King Jr. of the horse people. Uh, so in in a sense, in a sense, <laughs> this is line. um. I mean, it's a great movie. movie, (laughs) Who doesn't? There's a reason the the script was published before the movie was ever made. Because it's just a good story. It's just, it's just. But that's also part of the social satire. Yes, you know, another, you know. But it preempts the the institutionalized uh, uh, aspects that you know get overlooked in uh, the Spike Lee movie, where the system itself is always able to co-opt the. the antithesis or the the yeah. the, um, the, the resistance character, the dissenting voice, into their own program of maintaining the status quo, yeah. which is essentially what making a you know a uh, a cop hero movie against the uh, against white supremacists essentially does the job for them, you know. So uh, I can see that, yeah. But it's also about obviously lying to that person because I mean, again, I want to be spoiler here, but of course, the idea is that. Yes, you're going to become the Martin Luther King for the horse people. Of course, I wouldn't, against your will and knowledge, right. turn you right. into one of my right. experimental animal-like creatures. But guess what? You right. know, in other words, he asks him, but there's no real choice. Mm-hmm. So the idea of being co-op is again co-op is not a matter of like, will you accept my Faustian bargain? Mm-hmm. It's more like. I'm going to present the Faustian bargain, but I'm going to make you do, you know, you're going to end up doing exactly what I want because I'm turning you into the thing that I want to turn you into. Right. Which right. is, which is, I guess, more of the, uh, I'm going to like, set you like up. it's, it's actually an even more direct comment on, on Martin Luther King's, uh, you know, popular persona in, in mainstream, uh, uh, discourse, which is, you know, civil rights leader, all that kind of stuff, but nothing about anti-Vietnam, nothing about socialism, nothing the fact that he was, you know, Doing big into strike, unions, worker strike, this. all that kind right. of stuff. And, you know, now uh, you had uh, literally a car commercial during the Super Bowl using Martin Luther King's words in a speech where, like, in the lines well, right truck, after... like trying to sell... Yeah, trying, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but, <laughs> but in order to sell cars, but in that exact speech that that quote is from there's actually a line like a few lines later in in the next passage where he talks about the evils of advertising and how it's you know distracting us from the actual you know social Mm -hmm. and political projects that we're supposed to be working for if we buy stuff we'll be happy so even martin luther king because of the situation because of the way that the society is structured he doesn't necessarily have a choice anymore of how he's actually used or employed or implemented uh in order to maintain the the capitalist system uh, so just like that, Cassius Green doesn't also have that choice anyway in the film, too. Also, I, it reminded me of something else uh, that I thought of for Black Klansman, um, the institutional critique. The one one moment that I thought was kind of wrong-footed and I, I think was kind of missing something really important in Black Klansman was there's a scene where there's sort of like a parallel, there's a, a cut, there's editing between the uh, Klan rally and the uh, like uh, Panther protest rally. So he literally has, and they showed it in the trailer too. It was um, on one side. There's literally a, a shot where all the um, Klansmen are going white power, and then he cuts to another shot, and it's all the Black Panthers going black power, and kind of equating the two visually. And that I was like, uh, I don't think that was particularly well done because even though it's two groups of people who are all united behind particular goals and have particular whatever mentalities and philosophies in in, in mind equating the two or juxtaposing the two as in like here's one mob shouting we want x and here's one sh- mob shouting we want y 
is just to, is, is is on some level to suggest that it's just two mobs yelling for their well. I well, mean, part of what makes mainstream inter- like part of, of what makes mainstream sure. entertainment. It sounds like I have not seen this film, so I'm just since you've just you stimulated the more idea, now? I'm going to see it more now. Is that you snip off the radical? You know, the whole idea is to snip off all the radical edges so that we can all sort of embrace the middle. So that's what it sounds like to me. Like the Klansmen, radical hatred. Oh my God, black power, radical hatred. We don't want yeah. that. We're going to clip that off right. and we're going to end up in the middle. Well, apparently you know? the, the Stokely Carmichael uh, character, um, the Ron Stallworth guy asks um, uh, Brother Torre, what should I do? Or do you really think there's a race war coming? And the Stokely Carmichael guy uh, says, arm yourself because it's going to happen. So you're going to have to go kill Whitey. But apparently uh, another thing that Boots Riley says is that, because uh, I guess he, joined a couple of his reading groups or whatever back in the day and he says uh what he would have said in real life is educate yourself right you know yeah, arm study. yourself art study big yeah. to everything is Ar- study, arm study, yourself study. with knowledge right as opposed to this so i mean like they they have to play up the the radicalism of the black radical because either. they want to have a balance that right, they can right. then so it's you not know. one side or the other so we can feel good about being you know i mean mm-hmm. the idea is to reassure people that they can feel good about being in the middle i mean what right. was interesting about the riley film is that it ends with on a fairly radical note in other words we are rooting for these creatures you know to wreak their their violent revenge right. on the people who sort of you know who have mutated them probably against their will and which is far, you know, so in that way, it ends on a far, far more sort of radical, mm-hmm. radical note. I suppose we could just take it strictly on a filmic level, though. So uh, Birth of a Nation is a big part of uh, Black Klansman. Um, there's uh, a very, very long scene with uh, what's his face? Alec Baldwin? No, not Alec the early one. Well, in the beginning, they talked. About no, uh, singer. Oh, Harry Belafonte. Harry Belafonte, yeah, right. Yeah, so he, yeah. he gives basically like a lecture right. on the history of black representation in film uh, uh, and stuff. Talked and an about, actual lynching that he yes, witnessed. Yes, and, 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 and an actual lynching. Right. Uh, in, 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 that in, I think the yeah. character is talking about witnessing. And I believe, I might have this wrong, but I believe Harry Belafonte himself may okay. have witnessed or have heard. I, I think he's talking about a real event. Um, that, anyway. And this is the, it's a long scene, which is doing the cross-cutting between uh, the... the um, induction ceremony for the kkk uh where the actual undercover uh jewish cop <laughs> gets inducted into the kkk which is just great to think of uh ha- yeah happening. i thought that worked i yeah. mean that was like a- um yeah. but but so birth of a nation is a uh, cinematic masterpiece and technical feat specifically for certain things like cross-cutting or the uh, dw griffith's ability to develop uh, the technique of cross-cutting in order to raise the tension so fucking high totally. that you just can't like help yourself and you're literally on the edge of your seat and it's the most exciting thing possible right and so i think you'd have to probably go back and it's one of those things that you know uh film theory students are going to do and probably nobody else but look at the ways in which the editing techniques um that uh spike lee is using and just his you know uh filmic techniques in general how they're uh, both referencing the history of black exploitation films or the genre of black exploitation films, but also the genre of just film in general, which, you know, every filmmaker is an inheritor of it, you know, whether or not they're the marginalized filmmaker or if they're a mainstream filmmaker or whatever. And specifically because Birth of a Nation is, is, is referenced so many times in that film, cross-cutting and tension should probably be somebody's master's thesis at some totally. point. So. And just, uh, Spike Lee has yeah. been teaching film forever. He knows oh, yeah. his no, film. I mean, somebody, I give me a, somebody give me a footnote if you, if you yeah, take that. Totally. <laughs> that Artsview's Gr- podcast D- has brought you that insight. I mean, you're right on about D.W. Griffith's Which, in a funny way, you know, I mean, came out of his sort of, because he came out of sort of Victorian culture. So... Partly, it's sort of Victorian melodrama, which often had characters right, right. almost, you know, the, the evil guys about to come. And he basically took that sort of melodrama and then, and then obviously using cross cutting to, to create more and more suspense. So the idea is that it just goes, you know, this is history as viewed through Victorian melodrama, right? right? And that's what he was giving us in Birth of the Nation. So I guess we'll leave it there. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a solid place. Is that a, re- a resounding what, uh, enough final note, or that indeed. may be cut? That's so, what okay. we're that's what we're getting. <laughs> if uh, it's from, not resounding enough, from, we'll cut from, it. that's All what right. we're getting from Birth of a Nation. Uh,